So 960 years before this account, it starts with the splitting of a kingdom into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, a southern kingdom, Judah. In the northern kingdom, there's a king named Omri, and he makes the capital city of this northern kingdom, he calls it Samaria, to rival Jerusalem to the south. And then he starts a process that all 19 kings do in the northern kingdom. He erects these competitive sites of worship to compete with the temple to the south. Uh, so you have political, religious, and cultural barriers daily deepening between the two kingdoms. And then everything changed. It actually got worse. There's this warrior nation, this new superpower called the Assyrians, and they come into the northern kingdom and they wipe it out. And they're incredibly gifted and talented, this people, in war. They actually, their national deity was a god of war, and they reflected and imaged that god very very skillfully. One of the things that they would do is they would immediately take the, the most important people in a conquered nation and take them off to the capital of Assyria like a bunch of caught fish, literally. They would stick fish hooks through the mouths of the people that they captured, one after the other after the other, and would lead them like a whole bunch of fish they just caught back to the capital. Those that were left behind in a conquered area, their part two plan was to resettle it with foreigners from all over the world. This happened in, this is what Stalin did in the Soviet Union. I remember being in Kazakhstan in a, in a mostly Kazakh Muslim republic and I would find a Tartar and I would find Koreans and I'd find Russians there and I'd say, how did you get here? What are you doing here? They say, our grandparents came here. Stalin deported us here to keep nations from uprisings, being united. They intermarried. He kept them down to mix and match. So part two of Syria's plan was to, was to mix foreigners from all over the world into the northern kingdom, and they were called Samaritans. The foreigners would intermarry with the Israelites and created Samaritans, half Israelite, half Gentile. Well, then the southern kingdom gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that in 580 B.C. And then the Persians beat Babylon, but the Persians were a little more favorable to the southern kingdom, and they let them go back to their home and rebuild the city. And when they go back under Nehemiah's leadership to rebuild the city, Nehemiah records that there's a group of people, though, in the land that despise them and hate them and were violent towards them. And guess who those people were? Samaritans. Well, then the Samaritans... Under a year later, years later, there's this new superpower that came on the block. He was a superpower of one. Maybe you've heard of him, Alexander the Great. He gave the northern kingdom permission to rebuild, well, to build a Mount Gerizim, which is right by the well where Jesus goes in our story, a rival to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is a story about intense racism. Religious crusades, <laughs> a history of deep-seated hatred. So welcome to John chapter 4. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Come on, bro. John 4, 1 to 30 and 39 to 42. 
Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to him, as Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me that uh, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, he told me all that I ever did. Since when is that good news? I don't want you knowing everything I've ever done, right? Let's find out. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we, ask that you would, we ask that you would give what this passage grants. Would you give us living water? Would you well up? Would you fill? Would you renew? Would you revive? Would you give us this living water by the power of your word, through the riches of your grace, Grant it, Lord. Grant it. Amen. All right, this part of the world is modern Palestine. Nothing's changed, right? Still the most contested plot of real estate on the planet. Uh, Saqqar is modern-day Nablu, or Nablus. It's an embattled Palestinian city on the West Bank. It's in the news very often. Uh, this is where Abraham made his first sacrifice. This is where Abraham was given the promised land for the first time. Land that flowing with milk and honey, right? Perhaps it's because of this 960-year history, nasty history, and the 2,000 years of more nasty history that the text says in verse 4, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He just had to. This passage bleeds barriers. They're all over the place, right? You've got gender, racial, national, political barriers. You've got religious, moral, spiritual barriers. You've got personal, relational, societal, institutional barriers. You've got historically rooted in present day and then cosmic barriers. This passage is loaded with barriers. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. So here's what we're going to do. I'm really excited about this. We're going to re-experience this text. Re-experience it. That's its design. It's to take you into the story and not just tell you about it, but take you there. And then we're going to experience the power in the text. We're going to look at some things and what they mean and their significance for us today. And in doing so, living water. It's 12 o'clock noon. It's blazing hot Middle Eastern sun. It's the hottest time of the day in a, in a desert region. Jesus and his disciples have been walking for about six hours, probably. Uh, the text says that he's exhausted. Wearied is too polite. He's exhausted. He's a human being and he is exhausted. They are traveling northward. They're going from Judea up to Galilee. Guess what sits in the middle? No Israelite travels through Samaria. So they go the west coast up the Mediterranean or the east side up the Jordan River. No one goes through Samaria. No Israelite. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, 12 o'clock noon, in other words. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Everything about the story is odd. A Jew traveling through Samaria. And then you have a woman alone at a well in the hottest time of the day. All throughout the Bible and ancient literature, going to the well was a social event. 
Why? Well, the short answer is because women did it. <laughs> and when you get a group of women together, it's a social event. Right? In Genesis, it says, 24, it was toward evening, the time when women go out to draw water. It was the custom for the women to get the water in those days. The women got the water in those days. And so when a group of them went to get the water, they went in the best times of the day, morning and evening. And when a group of them got together, it's a social event. It's the first women's ministry. Right? Also in the Bible, a lot of love and a lot of marriage started at wells. Isaac, Jacob, Moses... At wells. Women in the ancient world did not go to the well alone, and they certainly, if a group of them didn't go at high noon. So something's off here. It's a clue. It's like, wait, something's wrong with her. I wonder what it is. Verse 7. I want to give you the literal translation because it goes like this. If you want to know why, it's an aorist imperative, which means you do put request in front of it and not make it a command, just, just so you know. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Bruner, who's a, a Johannian scholar, says it this way, Jesus did not command the woman to give him a drink. He asked. He asked her for a drink, as, a, as the woman himself, herself says in verse 9, an asker, someone who asks, as we know from human experience, momentarily places oneself beneath the asked one in social power. So Jesus goes down low in his initial relation to the woman. He's not only a real human being, but he's acting and talking like a, a real human being. Some commentators say in verse 1, of chapter 4, that Jesus starts hearing that he's getting more famous than John. It wasn't because he was bothered by the Pharisees. Some say it was out of deference to John that he even went low to John. He didn't assert himself, and he was even considering John, just like he's considering this woman. Verse 9, so the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So we know she feels deeply 960 years of intense, unbreakable barriers. She names at least two, gender, race. I'm sure she felt the geopolitical because she actually talks about it. Then she even talks about the, rate, she talks about the religious crusades that went on. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, please give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. For Jesus, the strange thing is not him asking her for water. The strange thing is she's not asking him. And he's like, honey... If you knew me, and you knew the gift I give, you'd ask me. And I'll give you living water. Do you know the hardest, toughest, thickest, deepest, darkest, nastiest, nastiest, that's a word, right? Nastiest, unbreakable barrier is not gender barriers, racial barriers, cultural barriers, ideological barriers, religious barriers, moral barriers, political barriers, national barriers. It's the human heart. 
the most unbreakable barrier in all the world. It's the most deep-seated. It's the thickest. It's the darkest. Benjamin Watson is an African-American NFL tight end for the Baltimore Ravens. He is a beast. He is so good. Well, after the racial barrier that uh, divided Ferguson, Missouri recently and many in our country, he wrote a Facebook post that more, more than a million people have read. Here's parts of his concluding paragraph. It goes like this. Ultimately, the problem, he says, is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. He goes on to say, sin is the reason we rebel against authority, and sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and like to cover for our own. And sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. The human heart is endlessly thirsty. See, look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. Endlessly thirsty. Do you see that? I mean, that's everyone. Everyone is endlessly thirsty. Wait, wait, wait. So you're talking about a Baylor student? Endlessly thirsty. Wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about the one that... Are you talking about the well-formed family that have well-behaved kids? Everyone. talking about a modern-day person. You're talking about an ancient person. You're talking about a Greek person. You're talking about a Slavic person. You're talking about a male. You're talking about a female. You're talking about an infant. You're talking about a teenager. You're talking about a 20-year-old. You're talking about a six-figured income person. Everyone is endlessly thirsty. The human heart is unable to quench and so thirst, though, right? Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Who's going to be thirsty again? You. Who's going to be thirsty again? Me. Everyone. Unable to quench our own thirst, though, doesn't keep us from trying, does it? And oh, we try, don't we? I mean, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And this is incredible. Look how Jesus responds. In the Greek, it's actually more tender and it's more, it's more gentle. He basically says, yeah, honey, you're right. You, you said that right. You did. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband, is he, honey? The Samaritan woman tried to quench her thirst with men. Men. And you try to quench your thirst with fill in the blank. In our staff meetings before we uh, read the text before we're going to preach it. And uh, we look at it, and I ask, we just talk about, like, what do you see, what strikes you? And Holly this week wondered, is she trying to pick up Jesus? <laughs> look at verse 27. 
Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Uh, one commentary said, there are erotic overtones in this verse. The disciples are surprised, not that he's talking with a Samaritan, but he's talking with a woman. But they, they trusted Jesus. That's why they didn't ask what for and why Jesus. They trusted the way he interacted. They trusted who he was. But the connotations are all over it. A man, a single man and a single woman in the ancient world didn't meet at the well. 19th century, 1800s. I told this the first service. Isn't that just ridiculous? You call the 19th... Why can't the 19th century be the 1900s? I, I can't stand that. So, 19th century means 1800s. That's for my sake. That's not for yours. There's an interpreter named E.H.E.G. Paulus. Comically said, as the woman approached Jesus and the well from a distance. So, Jesus is walking to the well. A passerby is coming from the well. And he says, in effect, watch out, you don't become her sixth. What if she was trying to pick up Jesus? It's not shocking him. In fact, he's so tender and he's so gentle with her. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. It's incredibly difficult to understand ourselves, isn't it? I mean, let's think about it. We always say here at the church that we, we talk about this in the leadership, we talk about this amongst teachers, we talk about there are two great realities that must be present in someone's life for you to truly change or for you to truly become who you're supposed to be. One without the other doesn't work. If any of them are missing, you have no chance. The first is you, you and I must understand ourselves. Calvin wrote about this. The second is they go together, they're inseparable. You have to encounter Jesus in large doses and continual ongoing ways. There is no growth for you as a human being in me. And there is no sense of any sort of significance or what even Slim was talking about, wanting to matter. There's no sense of any kind of well-being without us understanding ourselves and encountering Jesus. And that is the hardest thing to do. It's incredibly difficult to understand the endless thirst that's raging inside of you right now. And it's even more difficult to see how you seek to quench that thirst in all kinds of faulty ways. I mean, when Jesus probes her heart, the Samaritan woman becomes a good Presbyterian. Do you see that? A great Presbyterian. She avoids her heart by having a theological conversation. Do you see that? Verse 19 and 20, the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So let's talk about theology now. Are you ready? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You worshipped on that. Which one's the one we should worship on? But do you see that avoiding your own heart is the same thing as avoiding Jesus? Avoiding Jesus looks like avoiding your heart. So if you want to know, if you're all in on Jesus, but you don't, you don't face your heart, you don't know Jesus. If you're all into facing yourself and you're all into understanding yourself, but you never encounter Jesus, you're not really understanding yourself. They go together, right? 
So we avoid our heart when we lie. And we avoid our heart when we escape. And we avoid our heart when we eat. I wrote initially another bowl of ice cream. I think it must be five, personally. You got at least threes to give me. Four is okay. Five, you're starting to avoid your heart. <laughs> Especially on Sundays, right? We avoid our heart when we blame others. We avoid our heart when we work around the clock. When we never get unplugged from social media. When we're at its beck and call. Ding! <laughs> That's what it feels like, doesn't it? I hear someone's ding and everyone salivates and runs to their phone. I'm like, okay. I'll just eat another bowl of ice cream. That's the way it is. We avoid our heart when you can't be alone. We avoid our heart, and this is, a, this is an e harder one to detect. We avoid our heart when we fixate on fixing other people. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. Jesus' answer to the unbreakable barrier of the human heart is what? Did you see it? Did you hear it? Verse 10. Living water. I mean, listen to it again. This is so beautiful. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, please give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I mean, did you catch what is the living water? I mean, here, the quick answer to the whole Bible. What's living water? Let me give it to you. I don't want to defend it. I don't want to prove it because you just waste time. Please. It's the Holy Spirit. John makes it clear. He says in John 7, it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it in John 6, it's the Holy Spirit. The Bible, the imagery throughout the Bible of living water has always been the Holy Spirit. But notice that the Holy Spirit is a gift. You don't get the Holy Spirit by being sincere. You don't get the Holy Spirit because you're obeying. You don't get the Holy Spirit for being holy. You don't get the Holy Spirit when you get a sign. You don't get the Holy Spirit because of a step or a spiritual technique or because you have some inward yielding or surrendering. You don't get the Holy Spirit if you have less than five husbands. You get the Holy Spirit by grace. Unperformed, unearned, unmerited grace. The Holy Spirit is not achieved. The Holy Spirit is received by grace alone. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? How do you receive this living water? I mean, notice in verse 14, whatever it is, the experience of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing, continuous welling up. The original language talks about it being in present tense, but it's this thing that, sure, when, when you become a Christian, it starts, but it never exhausts it. When you become a Christian, it's the beginning of a welling up. But Paul was here, he'd say, look, be filled with the Holy Spirit, present tense imperative, a continual, ongoing, daily renewing, reviving, working, flowing Welling up within you, encounter, experience, reality of the whole Christian life. The water that I will give him will become within him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? How do we have these continual, ongoing, daily, regular way of life welling ups? Jesus says, ask.
but we don't ask. Jesus says, honey, you, you don't ask because you don't know two things. You don't know it's a gift. You can't slave around for it. You can't work for it. You can't exercise spiritual disciplines to get it. You don't do enough hard work and then you get a sign and now you know you got it. It's by grace. Second, if you knew me. And those are two things we just don't get. If we knew Jesus, the contours, the wonders of who he is, the riches and the depths of what he's done for us, we'd ask. If we weren't so stunted in our understanding of what grace is, we'd ask. Grace is an alien substance. It's not a substance, but you know what I'm saying. It's an alien attitude and reality of the way the world does not work. The world works on achievement and performance. The world works work, reward. Don't work, get punished. That's how we all work. The world works by evaluating. The world works by measuring. The world works by being on trial 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You want to know why you're exhausted? Because you live in the world. And you want to know why your heart's exhausted? Because your heart's default mode is to work, to earn, to perform. So what he's saying here is incredibly profound. We don't get grace. If we did, we'd ask. We don't get Jesus. If we did, we'd ask. That's why there's this worship debate in verse 19 through 24. Please, the most common understanding of what happens in this stuff, it's not lowercase s and lowercase t. It's uppercase s, uppercase t. This is not a debate about external worship and internal worship. Lowercase s. This is not a debate about where you're supposed to worship. That's the most common understanding today. That's not the debate. The debate is who you worship. The debate is the object of worship. The debate is capital S worship, capital T worship. Leon Morris says it this way. Well, I need to tell you what that means. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, and truth Jesus' truth always go together. They're always together. They're never separate. We're celebrating the Reformation, so I'm going to tell you a little secret about the Reformation. That's what they recovered. You had, you had the Holy Spirit and the gospel of the Word together in the Bible, never to be separate. So wherever the gospel goes, Jesus is truth. Truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes. So if you want to grow in the Holy Spirit, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to get more of the good news. The two go together, they're always separate. But what happened in the church is that the Word was taken away and the Holy Spirit got united to the church. That the Holy Spirit and the church now became this insolvable union. No, Scripture alone. And then later, like in our day, we have folks that the Holy Spirit's united to really specially anointed individuals. And that's how you get the Holy Spirit, through these elite spiritual giants. That's not it, right? And I lost what the last one is, and it was really, really good. Oh! <sighs> Always happens, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit today, what's the Holy Spirit united to? Biblical principles. 
man, let me give you a how-to on how to save your messy, your messy marriage, and all of a sudden you've got it. How to fix your kids, how to do this, how to do that. And in here, the whole point is spirit and truth. Jesus truth, good news truth go together. In fact, one of the premier Johannian scholars, Leon Morris says, for John, truth is not the teaching about God transmitted by Jesus. In other words, it's not... Jesus gets the... Oh, it, it, got it. Okay, this is what God says. The picture is, truth is God breaking in with his very reality himself because he is reality. Truth revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He's reality. And who he is and what he says is unleashing reality and meaning and logos and truth into the world. But truth that's soaked with the Holy Spirit. Hearing the truth releases the Holy Spirit or living water into our thirsty hearts. If Paul was here, he'd say, faith comes by hearing. How? Hearing. What? Hearing. What kind of hearing? The words of Christ, he says. Well, I don't have any faith. Then start hearing. I'm struggling. I don't understand this stuff about the Holy Spirit. Then start hearing. Start hearing good news. Start, as Luther was here, beat the good news into your head. Hear it. Meditate on it. Soak it. Read it. Jesus, uh, Jesus makes this clear. John tells him later, he quotes him saying, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. How do you experience the Spirit that gives life? Jesus continues and says, the words I have spoken to you are Spirit. When Jesus speaks truth about who he is and what he's done, you are given the Holy Spirit. You get life. You well up, you're filled, you're renewed, you're revived, living water. The truth is Jesus' truth. And Jesus' truth, good news truth, not good advice, good news truth, is like a sponge. And it's soaked with the Holy Spirit. And when you come in contact with the Jesus truth, the good news truth about Jesus and his salvation, the sponge is squeezed and you get soaked with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. Spirit and truth. This is what happens to the woman, does it not? I mean, watch how powerful this is in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that after the debate, the theological discussion, good Presbyterian, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. Here it is. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It's loaded. Here it comes. You ready? Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She is given living water. She gets soaked. How do I know? How do you know? Because she proceeds to go to her whole village and converts almost an entire village. And her good news is, come here, someone who told me everything I've done. The only way that can be good news 
is if you are fully known and fully still accepted and loved at the same time. There's no other way. No other way. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. So how can Jesus give us this kind of gift to people like us? How can Jesus give the gift of the Holy Spirit to this serial adulterer? How can you have any confidence at all that when you ask, he will give it? How can she be so excited to tell the village, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did? How can this ever be good news? John is the one that records it because he connects it to the story. On the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Jesus says, I thirst so he can satisfy your thirst. He experienced the ultimate cosmic thirst of sin and brokenness and endless quests to faulty satisfy it. Jesus said, I thirst so he can satisfy your thirst. So ask him. Ask him for living water. This is a story about unbreakable barriers until Jesus comes. Amen.